Hello, everyone, and welcome back to yet another episode of Annoying Question Boy podcast. It is me, of course, your boy, Annoying Question Boy. Uh, today we got a we got a pretty good one today. Um, so by request of a gentleman who is in the same uh, leftist podcasting group as myself on Facebook called Left Pod Posting. Uh, commented on one of my posts and said that uh, they felt as if um, a lot of you people in the U.S. only cover U.S. politics and U.S. current events, but there's a lot of things going on across the, the world. Um, so I had them message me, and they basically said that they kind of want an overview of what happened in Bolivia last November. Um, so I kind of took that and ran with it. So today we're going to do... Um, we're going to do an episode about Bolivia, which I've done one or two about before. Um but we're going to we're going to deep dive today. Um so I am I I did a a shit ton of research and compiled it into what I'm hoping I can keep to about an hour long episode. Um but first we're going to start with the uh real quick uh watered down version uh history of Bolivia as a country. Um, and as a government and everything that it's gone through since it's, um, I mean, ancient days. And then we'll kind of use that to segue into the brief history of Evo Morales, the former president of Bolivia from 2006 to 2019. And then from there, we'll talk about what happened last November, um, why it happened, what has happened since, and kind of what to do with that information. But before I say anything, I would like to say two things. Um, first of all, I took Spanish for five years in the United States. Um, I took it for three years in high or four years in high school, and then I took it for two full semesters in college. Um, my second semester in college was the first time that I had anyone who was a native-born Spanish speaker teaching me Spanish. So I will say that all of the, the phrases, the names of cities, stuff like that in this history um, that are in Spanish, I am going to pronounce wrong, I'm going to sound very white, and I am perfectly okay with you making fun of me for it. It's very funny. Uh, the second thing that I would like to say is um, this kind of really got me excited about doing research and stuff like that. So to those of you who uh, are listening, if you have any topics or anything like that that you feel you haven't heard a whole lot about, that you haven't heard a lot of podcasts talking about, maybe you haven't been able to find information about, go ahead and DM me on one of my social medias uh, and I'll be sure to... Uh, probably do an episode on it because i i really enjoy actually doing stuff that people want to listen to i love doing current events and kind of doing the news and talking about like this is what happened is happening this is what's happening but i especially like having a specific topic to talk about that makes it um makes it a bit more fun uh so yeah let's go ahead and get into it and roll the intro music Um, so I want to make sure that I give, um, 
complete context so that absolutely nothing here is left for interpretation. Um, so like I said, we're going to start with some history about Bolivia and then expand that into uh, events that have happened throughout the history, uh, Evo Morales' kind of personal history, and then what he's done, as, what he did as president, and then kind of what's happening in Bolivia now. Um, so like I said, this is the very watered-down version of history. Um, there's probably so much I left out. Um, I tried to find as much information as I could, so I, uh, sorry if I left anything out. So, uh, starting from the beginning, uh, around 2,000 or so years ago, the Aymara people began to inhabit, uh, the land, mostly the highland, the highlands in, uh, Bolivia, in the mountains, and, uh, everything up there where there really wasn't any rich soil there was awful weather patterns and very low oxygen levels um so they were certainly on their own up there um and then eventually after some years of settling they kind of fell into their own uh the potato was introduced into uh the crops of the aymara people um this along with their raising uh, of alpaca, llama, and uh, vacuna for food, clothing, and transportation that all kind of culminated and made up their uh, agricultural economy. Um, there are estimations that say that about between 15,000 and 30,000 people could have lived in the area at this time. Um, however, between the years of 8,600 and 700, there was a massive change in the climate, which allowed little to no precipitation in the region for uh, years on years. And this eventually led to the end of the settling of the Aymara people in the highlands. Um, the land wasn't inhabited again until the Incan Empire began to expand into the region and took over between around 1438 all the way to 1527 is the what the sources that I read said. Um, they basically were saying because there was a bunch of power struggles during that time. So, like, they were, tr they were trying to inhabit it as early as 1438. And 1527 is kind of when, like, the Inca really, like... I don't know. I, I, I guess that's... <laughs> um, and then eventually with Lake Titicaca and the western Bolivia being made into part of the Incan province of Kuala Suyu. Uh, then, of course, we have uh, the Spanish conquistadors. Uh, fuck them. Just, I would like to make that known. <laughs> um, Francisco Pizarro, uh, specifically, who sailed down t and discovered, quote-unquote, discovered the land of gold, which he, of course, uh, found in Peru and eventually made his way to the Incan Empire's capital, where Atahualpa, the Incan leader of the region, refused to accept his rule, the Spanish's rule, and would not revert to Christianity. This came after the raiding of the region, which left the Incans destitute. Uh, a year or so later, the city of Cusco fell and became part of Spanish territory. There were, however, many rebellions after this time, many taking the lives of Spanish conquistadors and gaining some amount of power um, for the time being. 
Also around this time, the two main players, Pizarro and Diego de Almagro, were consumed by a civil war with one another. Uh, Almagro made his way to Cuzco to consolidate his power after the defeat of the Manco uh, Inca Rebellion. And then a year later, uh, Pizarro and his forces captured the city of Cusco, and Pizarro beheaded Almagro uh, himself. About three years later, uh, Pizarro was assassinated by a former Almagro uh, sympathizer, uh, and then eventually Pizarro's brother, Gonzalo, controlled Upper Peru until eventually the rebellion against Spanish rule uh, took his life. After his execution, the Spanish were able to somehow reassume power in Upper Peru and establish the city of La Paz. This time of Spanish rule was especially harmful and traumatizing for the indigenous populations who were immensely susceptible to the diseases that the Spanish brought with them. This eventually diminished the native population to half of what it was before the Spanish came. But this, of course, did not stop the natives in the area called the Chaco region from continuing relentless attacks against the Spanish and in so allowed themselves to remain semi-independent from Spanish rule in the lowlands. Of course, the Spanish spent most of their time mining all of the natural resources from Bolivia, including things such as silver, which helped to double the Spanish crown's wealth at this time. Spain was able to remain in power for a considerable amount of time because of, of the bureaucratic government and institutions it helped to create, with some considerable autonomy for local officials and people, which of course, with, of course, the quote-unquote oversight of royal officials who were called the Corregidores, I don't know, and the other watchdogs that had their allegiance as well to the Spanish crown. After uh, some time, four of the Corregidores became established as intendancy regions in Upper Peru in cities such as La Paz, Cochabamba, Potosi, and Chuquisaca. Um, and of course, just to throw it in the mix, uh, uh, you had the Spanish forcing natives to revert to Christianity or suffer at the hand of the Spanish army. Um, many Spanish people took children from the families of indigenous people. They raped and pillaged villages and even burned entire villages to the ground. Uh, during the 18th century, many rebellions took place against the white rulers by natives. Most of them were uncoordinated due to the break in culture that was caused by many indigenous peoples being forced to leave their culture and becoming a part of this new world, quote-unquote. This, of course, did not stop the indigenous people of the area to enact some 100 rebellions against the crown, many of which took place after the Spanish began to require higher tribute payments and increased mining. Um, this helped to spark the revolt of Tupac Amaro uh, II, who was a Spanish-speaking native who insisted on creating an auton autonomous zone for the indigenous people of Bolivia. Well, I guess this is pre-Bolivia, but of the region. This eventually became a full-scale revolt, which led to the defeat of some 1,200 Spanish people, leading 60,000 people, new people, to the cause. Eventually, Tupac Amaru II was captured and executed, 
as was one of his fellow revolutionaries, Tomas Katari, who uh, reigned, in, well, I reigned, came from the Potosi region, where he too incited a revolution. The Spanish, however, did not succeed in completely putting down all of the rebellions until 1783 and then used their newly reassumed power to execute thousands of indigenous people. Uh, Also in the late 18th century, uh, some folks called Criollos uh, began to become absolutely infuriated by the Spanish uh, reserving all higher administration positions for Spanish-born people. Uh, The Criollos had important and influential positions within the economy, especially within the mining and agricultural production positions. This discontent for Spanish rule also came at the same time as the Enlightenment took place in uh, across the world, I guess, really, which, even with the Inquisition, caused writings from Machiavelli, uh, Voltaire, John Locke, and many other writers who called for the questioning of authority and the necessity for reasoning and logic to make their way into uh, this region. These teachings were discussed in depth by many of the revolutionaries at the time within Latin America, which led to many becoming even more angry at the Spanish rule than they already were. Uh, Many within Upper Peru area actually remained loyal to the Spanish. Uh, That is, of course, until the Napoleonic Wars, where rule in the region began to weaken and the feelings of anger towards the Spanish began to grow extensively. After the arrival of Napoleon's forces on the Iberian Peninsula, there was a massive power struggle between many different uh, powers. One being Bonaparte, who was influential in the overthrow of the Spanish Bourbon rule, which called into question the loyalties of many in Upper Peru. Then you had the loyals to the Bourbons, as well as a few small factions who wanted Ferdinand VII's uh, sister Carlota, who ruled from Brazil to uh, assume power. During this fight for power in the region, many fell into a war zone, all fighting for different sides, and it wasn't until after 16 years of brutal war that the nation of Bolivia, named after Simon Bolivar, was finally established. During the 19th century, Peru and Peru and Bolivia both were able to enjoy years of advancement and prosperity, which eventually led to the creation of the Peru-Bolivian Confederation. But after some time, this was perceived by many as an attempt to overthrow the regional powers, and this led to the War of the Confederation, in which Santa Cruz helped to fight against most of the surrounding powers. The turning point in this war is found in the fields of Pacarpada, where the Confederacion Peru-Boliviana, led by Santa Cruz, defeated the rebel Peruvian and Chilean armies, causing the surrender and signing of the Puacarpada Treaty. Then later on, uh, the treaty eventually was thrown out by the Chilean parliament, and in the Battle of Yungay, the Chileans defeated Santa Cruz. Uh, This was the ultimate turning point in Bolivian history, which led to 40 continued years of coups, counter-coups, and uh, very short-lived constitutions. 
In the 20th century, conditions for indigenous people had not improved yet. They were still being forced to work grueling hours in a feudal-like state with no access to education, the economy, or even political participation. Soon thereafter, with the joining of the military forces, many indigenous people began to become politically and socially aware of many things they were denied education of before. During this time, also, the oil industry was nationalized by Bolivia. Uh, this was also one of the most important socio-political moments in Latin American history, according to Wikipedia, because following the Mexican Revolution steps, the Bolivian National Revolution helped to create the MNR, or the Revolutionary Nationalist Movement in English, which served for a small period of time before being overthrown by the Partido Izquierda Revolucionario. Um, after a brief civil war, the MNR won the 1951 democratic election, but was not allowed to assume power or the role of president due to claims of fraudulent voting. Gee, where have we seen this before? Uh, but on April 9th, 1952, the MNR incited a successful revolt and began the official Bolivian National Revolution. In the years to come, full adult suffrage was granted, rural education was implemented, the nationalization of the tin mines, and massive land reforms also occurred. At this time also, for the first time ever, the state began to include the, uh, the Aymara and Quechua people within society, who at the time made up for no less than 65% of the total population of Bolivia. Although it had awful faults in many areas, including a whole bunch of attempts at assimilation um, and policies similar to assimilation, which led to a lot of trauma and hurt, it was, in fact, even flawed the first time that the state had begun indigenous state relations. Soon thereafter, in 1964, a military junta took power, led by René Barrientos, who took power from President Paz and created a military rule over Bolivia, which continued in many different ways for almost 20 years. In 1969, after the death of Barrientos in a helicopter accident, weak governments began to take hold one after another. That is, until the government of leftist Juan José Torres took power in the years to follow. But after that, very soon, Bolivia faced a whole ton of outside pressure, um, some coming from the U.S. ambassador, Ernest Siracusa, who helped participate in the U.S.-led coup in Guatemala, who told the new leftist Bolivian government that they either had to change their policies or face a complete and utter economic drought from the U.S., the World Bank and the Inter-American Development Bank also refused to grant Bolivia the money they needed for industrial development unless the leftist Juan uh, José Torres either changed his policies or uh, relinquished power. A year after he had assumed power, Torres was overthrown by a right-wing uh, group of members of the MNR led by Hugo Banzier, Brazil, and the United States government, which helped to incite a disastrously bloody coup. During uh, Banzer's reign, due to ties with the United States, uh, which helped with trade, there was a massive increase uh, in the economy, and at the time of his rule from 1971 to 74, there was also massive unrest, which led to 
eventually the capture, imprisonment, and torture of close to 2,000 political prisoners. Um, those are leftist political prisoners, by the way. Um, this was due to the cutback on political power and uh, participation that citizens held once the military rule was enacted. Um, after Banzer's fall from power, there were elections in 78, 79, and 1980, all of which were marked as fraudulent. Coups, counter-coups, and caretaker governments were also enacted, all short-lived, until General Luis Garcia Meza took power in 1980. Garcia's rule was marked with violence, human rights violations, narcotics trafficking, and many other very important and dangerous systemic problems, which led to the dismissal of the U.S. aid and alliance due to Garcia's drug trafficking uh, by the Reagan administration. Eventually, Garcia was removed from power and extradited to Brazil, where he was sentenced to 30 years and has been serving that time since 1995. After this, three other military coups attempted to gain power for about a year and a half, and eventually it led to the creation of a Congress who was granted power to select and elect the new chief executive. In the following years, from 1982 to 1985, many different groups and leaders took power. And in 1985, Paz Ostensoro took power. Facing insane economic mismanagement, rampant drug trafficking, and many other social problems, he attempted to get right to work, and so after things, and soon after, things began to briefly look up for Bolivia. Human rights were no longer cause for trauma, the military was consistently staying out of politics, and all areas of government had committed themselves to a more democratic practice. However, all of this did come with many hardships. In some years to follow, after hyperinflation and the de decrease of tin prices in 1985, almost 20,000 miners were laid off. In 1989, with no candidate receiving a majority of the popular vote, in accordance with the Constitution, a congressional vote was taken in order to decide who was to govern. The AP, or Patriotic Accord, of General Banzier's ADN and Jaime Paz Zamora's MIR shared control and gave Paz Zamora the presidential throne. He continued Estensoro's neoliberal economic systems and aligned himself to the center-left. He took a hard line on domestic terrorism, but oddly enough did not do the same with the narcotics trafficking, which was again running rampant in the country at this time. He allowed many of the lead kingpins in the country very lenient sentences. Paz Zamora also did not agree with or to the U.S. extradition treaty, which led many to believe he held ties to the trafficking network, many assuming through the large kingpin Isaac Chaviara, or Chaveria. But even while technically under investigation for this, he was allowed to run again in the year 1996. Uh, jumping back a few years, in 1993 elections, the MNR's Sanchez de Lozada was selected as president and right away went right into action. He took aggressive steps right as he stepped into office, the biggest change being the capitalization program, in which he sold off the ownership of 50% of public enterprises, such as the National Oil Corporation, telecommunication systems, electric utilities, and many other nationalized goods. 
This, of course, caused much disruption in many different communities, specifically the growing regions of La Paz and Chaparre, the coca-growing region, and many different social outbreaks from 1994 to 1996 ensued. Between the months of January and April of 2000, there were mass protests across the country due to the attempted privatization of the water supply under the advisement of the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. This led to a series of protests of which caused the Bolivian government to declare martial law, eventually killing many people, imprisoning others, and arresting a bunch of protest leaders. Eventually, the privatization was overturned in April of that year, and following in the next year, 2001, President Hugo Banzier resigned due to being diagnosed with lung cancer. His successor, Jorge Quiroga, uh, served for about a year, but then in 2002, Sanchez de Lozada ran again and won. He only narrowly beat Evo Morales and the Moss Party, who received 21% of the vote, even after the U.S. ambassador claimed that if people voted for Morales, the U.S. would again cut economic ties and assistance to Bolivia. Later in 2003, there was a specially divisive event going on, the gas wars, which was a dispute over the exploitation of Bolivia's gas reserves. In September of the same year, 2003, protests began to break out where citizens were fighting directly with the military. This led to the death of many protesters and injuries to many, many others. Sanchez de Lozada eventually resigned and fled into the United States, leaving his VP, Carlos Mesa, in charge, who attempted to re- resign twice before handing the mantle over to President of the Supreme Court, Eduardo Rodriguez Vitize, who used said power to come to an agreement to renew Parliament and have a presidential election in December of 2005. So that's kind of just a real quick history from about 2,000 years ago to 2005 of Bolivia. Uh, As you can see, we have a bunch of different, I guess you'd call them, shift changes, uh, switching between very right-wing reactionary governments, military coups. Um, You had some evangelical leaders who were able to assume power, and then you had a lot of infighting in some of these parties due to a lot of uh, differences in economic situations, which, which of course, lead to a difference in political affiliation. Um, And you had a, a people group, the Bolivians, who time and time again showed that they will only allow um, people to govern their country who are there to govern for the people. Um, And this is something that is very evident all throughout South America. Um, They have a very strong sense of uh, anti-imperialism, which uh, very easily translates into a uh, disdain for uh, complete power of the government or even just a government who acts on the behalf of uh, not the majority of its citizens. So I'm going to use this to segue into Evo Morales' history, um, who, again, he was the president of Bolivia from the years of 2006. Technically, he was elected in 2005, all the way to 2019. Let me go ahead and take a drink here first, though. Um, as a boy, 
Juan Ivo Morales Aima, member of the Aymara indigenous group, grew up in Bolivia's western Aruro. He herded llamas, alpacas, and a few other animals as a child. Eventually, he attended school and joined the military. Soon thereafter, he and his family emigrated to the Chapari region, where they began to farm. Uh, one of the most widely grown crops at this time was coca, uh, a plant that is usually blasphemed due to its use in cocaine. But many indigenous and even simply South American countries grow it for its medicinal qualities. Some people chew on the leaves to relieve fatigue or, fatigue or hunger, and it's actually used for like many different things as well. Um, but because of its use in cocaine, of course, the United States, not a huge fan of the coca leaf. Or so they'll have your belief. But in the early 80s, after the closing of the tin mines in the area, and the laying off of some 20,000 miners, many, including, of course, uh, Morales' family, turned to the growing of coca leaf is in order to sustain a living. During this time, many workers were poorly treated, their crops were often sold at ridiculously low prices, and they were working back-breaking hours while barely being able to afford to live. Also during this time, some began to, to turn towards a movement, a workers' movement. And soon thereafter, the beginning of some of these movements, there was in fact a coca plant workers' union, of which Morales became heavily involved with. In 1985, he was elected as the group's general secretary, and three years later became executive secretary of a federation of multiple different workers' unions in the area. In the 90s, when Bolivia was attempting to suppress the growing of the plant with the help of the U.S. government, Morales helped to found the, U the MAS Party, or uh, Movement Towards Socialism in English. Um, he soon won a seat in the House of Deputies and ran for president in 2002, losing, like we said earlier, very narrowly um, to Sanchez de Lozada, uh, during his campaign, however, he called for the removal and expulsion of USA DEA agents that were present in Bolivia, bolstering the claims made by the U.S. ambassador that the U.S. would revoke funding if Morales won. He didn't stop there, however. Along with the MAS movement and many others, he helped to successfully force the resignation of Sanchez de Lozada, and he also helped to make the next president, Carlos Mesa, create a concession to consider changes to the highly unpopular U.S.-backed campaign to rid Bolivia of coca farming. In 2005, Morales won the election by a landslide, receiving 54% of the popular vote, making him not only the first Bolivian president to win a majority of the national vote, but also the first indigenous person, person to ever be president of Bolivia. He was sworn in January of 2006 and got right to work. He made promises to decrease the rate of poverty across the country, but especially in indigenous communities, nationalize the gas and other mining products, ease restrictions on coca farmers, and increase taxes on the wealthy while working to eliminate widespread corruption in the government and in the private sector. He also began seizing land from absentee owners and redistributed it to the poor communities. He nationalized the gas industry, making it so that Bolivia itself had the lion's share of the stocks in the facilities. 
Much of this, of course, upset the rich and wealthy folks who eventually began to hold violent outbreaks in many of the cities across the country. But in August of 2008, over two-thirds of the voters voted for the continuation of his presidency. In 2009, his ideal constitution was ratified, and it ushered a new day for Bolivian working-class individuals. Giving many indigenous people rights they had never had before, it enforced a limit on private holdings, as well as an advancement into the amount of control the state had over its own national resources. The Constitution also led to his second consecutive five-year term, which previously wasn't allowed, but with the ratification of the new Constitution it was, and in December of 2009, he won yet another majority. In 2014, due to the ratification of the Constitution during Morales' first term, um, because it was ratified like towards the end of his first term, he was again able to run for a third consecutive term in which he won the first round of elections with a sweeping 60% majority. Even more impressive was the fact that he did so well in the wealthier regions of Bolivia where he had normally faced opposition that year. Uh, in many years to follow, or I should say, in years to follow, with the decreasing prices in the world's natural gas resources, as well as the scandal that tainted his image, um, I don't really know if it's important to go into depth with it. He was friends with some lady who signed a contract with a, a Chinese company that got like $500 million for uh, the government, I think. So they kind of called that like, uh-oh. Uh, but um, that year... Uh, I believe it was 2017, 2017 or 2018, he lost a referendum by a 49 to 51 margin that would have allowed him to run again in 2019. Uh, Morales was actually able to run again in 2019 due to a court decision that was upheld within two different majority courts. Um, this obviously frustrated a lot of people because it was kind of a clear... Uh, it, ignorance of the referendum that he had lost already um i don't really know the history of all that i probably should have gone a bit more into depth on my research of that but it frustrated a lot of people because he ignored the referendum and uh, of course ran again in 2019 uh in that year with 45 percent of the vote going towards morales and 38 percent going to his predecessor carlos mesa there were calls for a runoff but in about 24 hours, it, would announce, it was announced that uh, Morales actually hit the 10% majority over Mesa, allowing him to win the first round outright uh, victoriously. This led to calls of fraudulence, and many took to the streets in protest. Soon to follow this, the OAS, or Organization of American States, released a report saying that there had been some irre irregularities in the election and required that Morales submit to another vote, or a recount, which he planned on following through with until General William Colliman, the commander-in-chief of the Bol Bolivian army, called for Morales' uh, resignation. And on the very uh, same you know, period, uh, Morales actually obliged, saying once again that there had been absolutely um, no fraudulent wrongdoing, and then he uh, said that he was a victim of a U.S.-backed coup, which, I mean, it seems pretty clear to me that that kind of all adds up, right? Like, I don't know. Um, let me take another step here. 
so that's kind of a brief history of Morales as president. I didn't really go into depths about, like, all the actions he took. But um, he spent a good portion of his time in office helping to rid the government of corrupt officials who had been dealing directly with the private sector and handing off a lot of stocks in some of the natural resource markets to private uh, companies. He also spent a lot of time advancing human rights for a lot of indigenous people, but as well as just your general non-indigenous citizen. He also spent a lot of time attempting to nationalize the lithium mines, which we will get into here in a minute. So uh, now let's go ahead and talk about what happened in November of last year. I'm going to borrow a lot from a blog that I wrote entitled What's Going On Bolivia, if you want to check that out. I will say it's definitely not one of my better ones. I wrote it when I first started blogging, so be nice. Um, So, to give a brief explanation of really what happened in November of 2019, we have to start with, of course, the claims that the election in 2019 was fraudulent. Uh, This claim has since been repealed, and another election has been intended to take place for months, but it has been rescheduled now uh, four times. But let's start with what happened. So... In October of 2019, it was declared that Morales had, in fact, won the election. Uh, However, this came after the live stream of the vote counting went down for approximately 15 hours, which led people like Morales' predecessor, Carlos Mesa, to take to the streets with his right-wing militia, which held much interest in the dismissal of Morales due to their ties to large businesses in the agribusiness sector. Uh, They eventually called for a coup supported by the police and the Bolivian army to remove Morales from from power. Uh, This led to Luis Fernando Camacho, who is a capitalist, ultra-right-wing evangelical leader, uh, to himself as well take to the streets, making his way to the government palace in La Paz with a Bible and a pre-litten letter of resignation for Morales to sign. Then, of course, the OAS aligned themselves with the right-wingers of the area and claimed that the election had been fraudulent, asking for Morales to submit to a recount. Um, Many UN and EU members also began voicing their support for the oppositional candidates to Morales, uh, one being the secretary for the U.S. Department of State's Bureau of Western Hemisphere Affairs, holy fuck, Michael uh, G. Kozak, who tweeted, and I'm quoting, We support the call for new elections and a credible representative electoral Supreme Court. Um, This led to many police uprisings where officers in masks with their identification ripped off of their uniforms began shooting into crowds of mosque supporters, kidnapping indigenous people, ransacking buildings, etc. with the help of the Bolivian army. Eventually, Morales gave up on the OAS, who he was trying to work with. The OAS was making him submit to a recount or a new, you know, casting of votes, which he was trying to, you know, say, okay, whatever. And then when the general, um, I forgot what the hell his name was, called for the military coup, it kind of escalated from there, um... 
he decided to resign, and soon thereafter, his home was destroyed and ransacked, and he himself had gone into hiding. Uh, protests began to burn indigenous flags. Police officers were cutting indigenous flags off their uniforms, many throwing them to the floor and stomping on them or lighting them on fire as well. <sighs> Excuse me. Carlos Mesa and Fernando Camacho began to call for a full per persecution of any and all MAS supporters and sympathizers, burning their homes, their crops, taking them into custody in unmarked vehicles, and some of which were just being shot in the streets. There were many protesters calling for a civil war, chanting in the streets, Camacho, Mesa, we want your heads. But the military was and is too strong for the most part, uh, and was able to kind of corral the protests. To kind of give you the long and short of what's happened since, uh, Morales fled to Argentina and then to Mexico, I believe, uh, leaving Janine Añez as interim president under absolutely no one's authority except her own and her military supporters. She announced herself as president on a live stream within an empty parliament chamber. Uh, standing beside her was Camacho, as well as other military offer officers and evangelical leaders of the area. Añez is absolutely extremely against uh, indigenous peoples claiming that they... Uh, she is extremely against indigenous peoples, comma claiming that they have no rights to the land that they have been settling on for centuries because it's mining territory, also claiming that indigenous practices were quote-unquote satanic witchcraft and that they must all resign to the rule of God. In the months to follow, protests against the U.S.-backed coup continued, leading to the death of many protesters as well as the injury or capturing of many more. On one day, there was actually a funeral march in honor of the falling protesters in which the Bolivian army fired tear gas and began to round up protesters who were marching. Uh, this coup was allowed to occur on the grounds that it was against an authoritarian government under Evo Morales due to his extended terms as well as his leftist vision of the country. This led to a quote-unquote democratic takeover um, by which the right wing of Bolivia showed its true nature of being murderous, uh, pro-imperialist, and racist people. Uh, during Añez's Ill illegitimate government's initial reign, more than 32 pro protesters had been killed, with many more injured and hundreds uh, arrested by police and military forces. Also throughout her quote-unquote governance, she has removed close to 700 Cuban doctors who were there providing essential medical care to Bolivians, as well as many international journalists, uh, which caused for the limiting of the coverage and understanding of what's happening there. Many MAS supporters had warrants issued for their arrests. Many people's homes were burned. The Wipala flag was cut down and burned at the government palace, and a mayor who was a member of the Moss Party was dragged into the streets, doused in red paint, and had her head shaved while being told, God has returned to the presidential palace. Since November, much has happened. Uh, of course, we all know that the outbreak of COVID became a worldwide problem, affecting many countries such as Bolivia especially hard, uh, who have a government that views the protesters uh, 
who are obviously, for a good reason, calling for the resignation of the coup's government uh, as murderers and thieves. Uh, they also called, uh, like I said before, indigenous people witches and uh, made it so that having their ceremonial practices were banned across the country. Um, kind of shows that there's little to no hope for Bolivia as it stands right now. Uh, on July 23rd of this year, the TSE, or Supreme Electoral Tribunal, upheld the decision to postpone the election for a fourth time now, moving the election all the way to October 10th of this year acting almost as if there is no Congress or parliamentary system in place, the government of Añez and the TSC are acting in self-interest and without proper procedure. They also had been discussing the possibility of dismissing and banning MAS from participating in any political election, which would remove the most popular party from the ballot. This is all due to, according to the government of Bolivia, COVID and the outbreak of cases, especially in cities like La Paz. Since the initial outbreak of COVID in Bolivia, the government has done absolutely nothing to expand the hospitals and treatment centers across the country. They have refused time and time again to implement any widespread testing services and have instead used the police and military to confine people into forced quarantine. Moss is attempting to cooperate even though they hold a parliament majority because they are attempting to remain seen in the eyes of the world and especially the OAS as being democratic in their actions, even while the right-wing government enacts authoritarian fascist practices. Following that week, July 23rd, on the 28th of July, there was a massive culmination of protesters who marched to uh, Ceja de Alto, uh, El Alto in Bolivia to call for the continuation of the previously planned September 6th election. This massive march was led by groups such as the Tupac Qatari Federation, which is a indigenous community organization, as well as groups of workers and miners, the Bartolina Sisa Organization of Impoverished Women, uh, which have called for a reinstatement of the September 6th election. Otherwise, there is and will be widespread blockades and a general strike. Uh, now, as recently as August 12th, according to the Left Voice article entitled Repression and Radicalization on the Rise in Bolivia, written by Diego Dalai, uh, there has been little to no progress in the communication between the coup government and the workers' blockade units. Uh, in talks since the beginning of the blockades, none of the workers' demands, which are mostly just the reinstatement of the original date of the election, uh, have been met. Instead, the right-wing government of Janine Añez has smeared the protesters time and time again, claiming that these movements are creating more widespread COVID cases, claiming that these protests are, quote-unquote, taking up the oxygen for sick people. This is, of course, a complete smack in the face to indigenous people, workers, and many impoverished citizens of Bolivia, after months and months of almost absolutely nothing being done by the Bolivian government to stop the spread of COVID. Refusing to enact massive testing campaigns, with the actual crumbling of hospitals occurring because of the deaths of many healthcare workers in the country, bodies being collected off the streets, and while protesters fight for their rights, they are being forced to mourn the deaths of their loved ones while actively being attacked by right-wing groups such as the Santa Cruz Youth Union or Resist 
Resistencia Juvenile Cochala, headed by, of course, Luis Camacho, who was influential in the November coup. But more and more repression of the protesters is simply leading to more radicalization of the very same protesters. With Moss being accused of terrorism on behalf of the protests that have occurred, they are attempting to take the energy in the streets to the polls. But with all what's happening, I see little to no chance of this occurring. After 100 plus days of forced military quarantine, months of right-wing fascist ruling by a government that placed itself in power, massive movements of workers and indigenous people calling not only for the removal of Anya's and her party, but also for the election to be set on September 6th again or else. Um, this is kind of a breaking point for Bolivia, and I don't really know where it's going to go. Um, so I have here on my notes, riff about what should happen. So, I mean, I, of course, am one who is going to always be pro uh, movements against uh, t- tyrannical governments. Um the Bolivian people, as well as many other South American countries, know full well what to do when their government takes power for itself and stops helping the people. Um, my only worry is due to kind of this, um, how do I say it? This confusion that has to do with the election in November, as well as how the fuck Janine Añez all of a sudden took power. Like, where the fuck did she come from? She's just a lawyer. Um, This is all possibly problematic because anytime the U.S. backs any kind of coup, you have to know that the military is not very far behind. So, with the coups in Iran and Afghanistan with the coups in Africa as well as other countries like Nicaragua, Guatemala, Venezuela, uh Peru and Chile throughout years and years of US imperialist history we have seen time and time again that as soon as there is a movement towards maybe socialism or leftism or even just a workers party the US military will not be far behind and i hate to see these Bolivian protesters lose their lives to U.S. military forces. Um, I'm not saying they should stop, um, obviously, but I'm just saying that when planes start landing, to not be surprised. Um, Also, uh, in America, of course, we have seen the George Floyd protests. We had... um, The protests in Portland because of the federal officers. We've had a lot of wide-scale insurrection across the country, um, which is beginning to die out. And I hate to say this, but I think unless we start taking notes from places like Bolivia, we will absolutely still see either a Donald Trump or a Joe Biden presidency in November. And... Honestly, at that point, without a true mass movement organized and ready to make demands, we will see a complete destruction of the United States empire. I I really promise you that. Um, I don't care if Trump wins. I don't care if Biden wins. If we do not get organized and if we do not get our demands straight, we will watch this country burn um, and not in the way we want to. Um, I was listening to 
an interview uh, on, I believe it was, uh, oh, was it the Trillbilly Workers Party? It was another podcast, and, uh, fuck, I have it in my notes, hold on. Okay, so, this is something that I wanted to bring up in this podcast to talk about, like, think, like how we make demands. Um, so, I can't remember what podcast I was listening to, but it doesn't really matter. Um, the gentleman who was being interviewed uh, brought up this thing called the Biden-Sanders Day One Agenda Unity Task Force, which is a pretty extensive uh text that details each and every step that a Biden or Trump candidacy and presidency can, like the steps they can start taking in the first hundred days to not only stop the outbreak of COVID, but to also correct the huge economic damages we're going to suffer and to help create and sustain actual, um, jobs in this country that will pay living wages. Uh, we have right around the corner a huge climate crisis. We're really in the middle of it right now, but we have the end, the end game coming up real soon. And uh, what I was thinking is, if we're trying to boost the economy, one of the most important things that we have to do right now is retrofit our infrastructure in the United States in order to go green. Um, this, of course, will not happen by choice by any presidency, by any of the candidates that are available right now um, that actually have a viable chance to win. So we have to get organized and, again, start writing down demands. Because with a distinct list of commands, or I guess demands, but commands also because we the people run this fucking country, uh, or are supposed to at least... Um, we can say if things don't get better, well, these were the steps you were supposed to take. Which of these steps did you take? And of course, that'll point out right then and there to anybody who's questioning it, that the government of the United States does not operate for the people. Um... This movement is also having a huge impact around the world with many other countries looking at it for inspiration. Um, and uh, like I said, we didn't really hit on it. Um, I forgot it wasn't really in my notes. But um, so Bolivia has the world's largest lithium mines in like in the world's largest in the world, world's largest lithium mines. Uh Evo Morales in, I believe, September or maybe August started making like direct actions to nationalize the lithium mines and to start giving out jobs to people, uh, a lot of indigenous folks, instead of to people hired by private businesses. Right then and there, don't you know, two months later, his, you know, his government is forced out by the military uh, under the allegiance to the U.S., and now all of a sudden, it's as if nothing happened. So, um, I mean, I'm not saying anything, you know, wink, wink, but uh, in all seriousness, guys, shit like this needs to stop happening. Um, we, 
we as leftists commonly have to, I know I personally have to explain what socialism is very frequently. Um, but I think that, I think that beyond explaining what socialism is, uh, when we get into conversations about socialism with people who are anti-socialist, we should bring up in full depth how involved the U.S. is in the economy of most of these socialist governments and how, as long as they remain mostly capitalist, um, they kind of get away with some socialist policies. But this, of course, will still lead to poverty because you still have capitalism. So just because there's some socialist policies in some of these countries doesn't mean, one, they're socialist, and two, it doesn't mean that socialism is bad and doesn't work. Because obviously, um, a lot of these countries have economies that are based on one or two natural goods, like Oliv or Olivia. Bolivia's was based in gas and tin mining, and now it's kind of in lithium and um, still gas mining. Um, which is a whole nother thing. I mean, should we be mining oil? But, um, it, it, it needs to be said that the United States has complete stakes in almost every, like, third world country. Like, we have a presence on almost all, like, all the different countries' soil, um, a military presence, and so it's kind of difficult for quote-unquote socialist countries to operate and actually show the world how socialism could help when you have a, a government and a military as large as the United States, uh, you know, trying at every turn to stop that from happening. Uh, but, I mean, that's about all I got for today, guys. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks again to, uh, let me let me get your name. Let me find you. Marvin Bischoff, I am sorry if I pronounced that wrong, uh, who is from Germany, who is in my uh, left pod posting, who uh, suggested that we do this. So, uh, yeah, thanks to you, my friend. I hope you don't mind that I mentioned your name. If you do, go ahead and shoot me a message and I'll remove it. Uh, but, yeah, that's the end of today's episode. If you liked what you heard, or if you fucking hated it, guess what? I have a bunch more episodes. So if you liked them, well, then there's probably something else you might like. And if you really fucking hated it, there's a chance you might like one of my other episodes. So go ahead and check those out. Uh, also, I have a blog. It's called Annoying Question Boy, of course. It is on blogger.com. And I also have YouTube, which I need to step the fuck up and post this fourth video. Uh, that I've had the script written for three weeks now. Uh, yeah, so I'll do that probably tonight. Um, if you don't already, go ahead and follow me on my social medias, uh, at Annoying Question Boy. Uh, I actually don't know if that's my direct handle, but you can search Annoying Question Boy on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Uh, and to all of you who, uh, have started showing up and listening to my podcast. I appreciate you, and I hope you continue listening. So, everybody have a great day. Hope everyone is staying safe and healthy. I love you all. Thanks again for listening, and as always, it has been your boy, Annoying Question Boy. Have a good night, guys.